This Janet Meffer Today archived broadcast is brought to you by Heart for Lebanon. We're trying to provide 100 refugee families with emergency supplies and the gospel during this urgent time of crisis. Your gift of $116 will help two families. Please help today by calling 888-247-5499. That's 888-247-5499. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Thank you so much for joining us again. This is really disturbing. A recent news story reported that a 25-year-old man was charged with leaving bloody satanic messages on a Greenville, North Carolina sorority house, and the blood purportedly was his own. And nowadays, it seems that these kinds of activities, these satanic activities, are on the rise. The Satanic Temple, for example, sued a billboard company recently for failing to post its designs announcing its religious abortion ritual. And there was even a recent story about a Brazilian man who had a portion of his nose surgically removed so he could appear as a human Satan. What is going on and what is the truth about the demonic realm? We're going to talk about it today with Billy Hallowell, Director of Communications and Content at PureFlix. He's out with a new book we'll be discussing called Playing with Fire, a modern investigation into demons, exorcism and ghosts. Billy, so good to have you here. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Why take a look into the demonic realm? Is it your opinion that there is kind of a trend now? There's more of this on the horizon and more of these kinds of stories going on? You know, I think it's a great question. It's it's such a tough topic to dive into. And I really, I'm a, I'm a journalist at heart. It's what I'm trained to do. And, I, and I'm a Christian, right? So I love tackling these tougher topics. And what is so unique and interesting about the demonic and about possession and exorcism is that we have a lot of people in the church who don't really want to talk about these things, and we can get into that. But yet we have a culture that is obsessed with talking about these things in Hollywood, right? Almost every scary movie that comes out this season is usually about ghosts or demons or some evil, right? Some related theme. And so I really wanted to dive into this because I also think we have a lot of things. I mean, you just mentioned a number of headlines that seem to show that something is off kilter, and there seems to be an increase in these strange news stories, these strange happenings. And I think at the root of that, people really want to understand, and that's why these movies are so popular, right? They want to understand what is evil. That's a core question, I think, um, of the human condition. And we know as Christians, that's a, a major component of, of our faith is trying to understand that. Oh, absolutely. So what, just <laughs> as an aside, and I want to get into this in a little bit more detail as we talk, Billy, but when you're talking about the church not being as interested as it ought to be discussing these things, when the culture seems to be so overwhelmed with this kind of stuff, what is the reason that you think that is? You know, when I was writing Playing With Fire, we asked a question. We went out and asked a number of questions of church leaders. So these are people who are volunteers in churches, they're pastors, they're, they're not just pastors, though. they're dealing with all sorts of leadership positions. And we asked them, do you believe that demons can impact culture? And over 80% of them said yes. Do you believe that demons can impact people's lives? The majority said yes. But then when you ask that question, are pastors in churches doing enough to address this topic? 
the majority said no. 78% said no. Hmm. And that was really convicting and eye-opening. And so when you ask why is that, we know it's an issue um, that a lot of churches are not talking about these things. And I think there are probably 10 reasons why. But one big reason is exactly what we just talked about. Hollywood talks about this. They, they really make it look a certain way. People feel as a result of that, I think, as though this is a strange topic, right? Yeah. And yet you read the New Testament, and, and admittedly, it, it's a difficult topic, but you have Jesus continuously and repeatedly healing people of this. And it's very clear in Scripture, we know that, that Satan is described to us, his attributes are very clear as a thief and a liar and basically trying to take our lives from us. Um, and so you see that, and then you see these stories. And I would argue that there isn't another issue in Scripture that is talked about so frequently and yet given such little attention in many churches, not all churches, but many. And so, you know, it's complicated, but I, I really do think there's also this element of trying to not look strange. And some of that might be wrong-headed, but the, on the other side, it may be that there are a lot of times we approach people who aren't Christians, and we start with the end times, or we start with, you know, the demonic, and that that may not be the best way to bring people into the fold. And so I think there's a lot of things going on there, but we also have, you know, this ear-tickling that goes on. We don't like to think about the negative. We want to think about the positive, right? We want to talk about Christ and what He's done for us and saving us and all of that. That's the core of the Gospel, of course, but I would actually argue that if you don't understand evil, it makes it a lot harder to see the need for the good, right? When, when you really look at this and you see the full scope of what is there and what we see in Ephesians 6, that reality of this good versus evil, if you don't talk about that or acknowledge it, it actually leaves people open, I think, to, to a lot of dangers. Oh, for sure. And, I, you know, one of the things that came to mind when you were discussing why pastors tend to avoid this topic, even though the people overwhelmingly want them to talk about it, and there are some other issues that have been polled about it where the, the same thing is true, where they want pastors to talk about certain cultural issues or moral issues, and the pastors don't really want to talk about it. I'm wondering, at least in evangelicalism, if part of the reason for that is that there has been excess when it comes to discussing things like deliverance and people will think of the extremists on uh, TV, you know, the worst of the worst, you know, taking advantage and maybe coming across a little bit as hucksters. They don't want to go in that direction because they don't want to be seen as being excessive or over the top. But that, you know, as you say, Billy, that's not an excuse because the Bible talks an awful lot about it. And so does the Lord Jesus. I mean, certainly we saw a lot of demonic activity at the time of his earthly ministry. How do you see Jesus's times compared with ours? When it comes to, you know, all of those accounts in Scripture of demonic activity, you think of Jesus casting out the demons into the pigs and the pigs going over the cliff and many, many others. What are we to make of all that? Yeah, and I think that's a great question, because there are people today, and I cover this in the book, who will debate and say, well, you know, those are things that happened then. They happened because Jesus was on earth then, and it was a reaction to that. They stopped happening after, but we have evidence in Acts, obviously, um, of Paul confronting these things. We we know that they didn't end at that point, and we're not told that they were going to end at, at that point, right? Yeah. We, we yeah. know that these things happened after Jesus dealt with them. And so I think we have to be very careful, though, to the point you just made— there is a legitimate need to be, you know, there's one side that says there are no demons, it doesn't exist at all, it's crazy, we don't want to talk about it, and then there's the other side that sees a demon behind every doorway. Right. And both of those perspectives are dangerous um, to faith, and there are actually examples I talk about 
in Playing With Fire of people who have gone too far, and people have died as a result of this, of, of mistreating those who you're assuming are experiencing a spiritual issue when it really is something mental or that there's something else going on with these people. So the reality is we are told, you know, and we are told this in the Bible in Ephesians 6, that we are going to face a battle over good and evil. And it's not a battle over flesh and blood. We assume that it is, but that there are principalities, there is darkness. I mean, these are basic elements of the Christian faith that we don't often think about. And so one of the best things you can do, and this is what I enjoy doing in my work, is tell people stories. And I think I can only present a story to you. I can't tell you to say, oh, you have to believe this, you have to say this is true. But in Playing With Fire, I really tried to dive in to individual stories. And I didn't want to overwhelm people with them, because I theologically wanted to talk with pastors and see and see what they believe. Yeah. You know, people who are out there in ministry dealing with this day in and day out. What is the balance between mental health and spiritual health, right? When is somebody mentally ill versus dealing with spiritual oppression? And really telling those stories, there's a couple that stand out to me, even you know, as we're talking about this, as very compelling stories of, of people really just dealing with the ins and the outs of this in the modern world. Well, there are a lot of stories, and I want to dive into some of those when we come back from the next break. But, you know, what you're saying is very important because it was the case that we didn't just have a problem with demons in Jesus's time. We had the seven sons of Sceva, for example, in the book of Acts, and that didn't turn out very well for them. This is something that is real. And, you know, especially when you look around where we are right now, Billy, in our culture with the rise of evil, people doing things. I mean, some of these crime cases alone uh, one in particular about a, a grown man who murdered his parents and dismembered them. And you're seeing more of this kind of stuff. It's getting harder and harder for even the non-Christians in our culture to not consider the possibility that maybe there really is something to this demonic realm. We're going to take a very quick break. We'll be back with Billy Hallowell. His book is called Playing With Fire. We'll return on Janet Meffer today after this. What's it like when a pregnant mom sees her baby for the first time? It all came down to the ultrasound. And I saw this little lima bean looking thing with a halo, which I thought was incredible. A baby wasn't really in the plan for this young mom. After seeing a halo on her baby on ultrasound at a preborn center, she was still leaning towards abortion. And I got to hear the heartbeat and I got chills. In that moment, I just felt God's arms come around me and hug me and tell me that it was going to be okay. Preborn is the largest provider of free ultrasounds in the country. Ultrasounds save lives. Would you join with Preborn in helping moms to choose life? To donate, just call 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. All gifts are tax deductible. That's 855-402-2229. Or there's a Preborn banner to click at JanetMefford.com. For several years now, Syrians have been pouring into the country of Lebanon to seek refuge amid terrorism and civil war. Now the crisis in Lebanon has escalated in the 
aftermath of COVID-19, a crumbling economy, and a devastating explosion in Beirut. Yet the spiritual crisis in Lebanon is the most devastating crisis of all because many people there have still never heard anything about Jesus. That's why Heart for Lebanon is on the ground ministering to hurting refugee families in the South and the Bekaa Valley in Lebanon, providing emergency supplies, Christian education, Bible studies, and worship gatherings for these refugee families. And the impact is incredible. Your investment of $116 will help two families impacted by the crisis in Lebanon to get emergency supplies that they need to survive during the next 60 days. But best of all, these families will hear the gospel of Jesus for the very first time. A gift of $58 is enough to help one family. Can you help? Call now, 888-247-5499. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. We are back, and thank you for being with us. Billy Hallowell is joining us. His book is called Playing with Fire, a modern investigation into demons, exorcism, and ghosts. This is a very well unsavory subject for a lot of people, but it's an important one. It certainly is a biblical topic, and it is one that is often not addressed as it should be. Billy, when you talk about the power of stories, I know you discuss this a lot in your book. Some of these stories you look at, for example, the Ammons case in Indiana, where these kids were claiming to be possessed by demons, and another story, Bob Cranmer out of Pennsylvania. Can you tell us a little bit about what you discovered when you looked into some of these stories that have been put forward about demonic possession and and these kinds of encounters with demons that people are claiming to have? You know, I think the I think the first thing, and I laugh because you know I'm I'm a Christian, but I'm also skeptical. I want to know that there's backing. I want to, and you can't always have that, right? And right. part of our faith is that we're not always going to have those details that are going to tell us with our own eyes, 100% that we're seeing something happen. But with these stories, the thing that I found most remarkable, particularly the Ammons case, and for those who don't know, that was a mother and her mother, so a mom, a grandma, and three kids. They claimed they were dealing with um, possession in their home, that they would have a possession of the mother, it would jump to the children, and it was just a really crazy case. But the thing that I discovered as I was going through the case is, okay, I want to go and I want to talk to people involved. I don't want to talk to the family. They've been on the record. We've seen what the family has said. There's enough quotes about that. I want to hear from the priest. I want to hear from, you know, who dealt with the case. I want to hear from a sheriff who dealt with the case. And what I found that was remarkable was that in separate interviews, really validating, in their view, a lot of the things that we heard about the case and really feeling as though they had experienced something that they could not explain. And that really, for me, is compelling. Now, is it possible that somebody is still lying? Is it possible that there's a natural explanation? They're not lying. They're just confused. Yes, that, that's always possible. But what I really found in these stories was, some, was a really compelling element. Also, not wanting to share a story. I always find that very, you know, when you're a little reluctant or you're not sure if you should share it, And there are people in these cases who have never spoken out because what they experienced was so traumatizing to them um, or life-changing to them. And I just, I find a lot of um, intrigue in those kinds of elements in these, in these stories. And I go in detail on the Ammons case in the book. Um, And also another case, very compelling, is the real life story that was built, uh, that the exorcist was built on. So the book and then the film. Now, obviously, Hollywood grabbed a hold of that, and they made it look the way they wanted to with the pea soup and all of that. But the real-life story, or the claims of the real-life story, are very, very intriguing. And you had a case with a little boy 
where the Catholic Church did not want the details of that case ever being revealed. And just like the Indiana case, there was somebody who revealed those details to the media, and the Washington Post covered this little boy's case in 1948, and it became a major, major, obviously, a motion picture and book uh, because the details were so shocking. And so I just I find that compelling. When people don't want to speak out, when people are reluctant, and even years later they say, I really wish this person's story would have been kept private, there's something to that for me as a journalist. Oh, yeah. And when you talk about exorcism, this is rather interesting in and of itself. I remember being in a seminar years ago at a youth conference, and they were talking about exorcism and and how you deal with demons if you come across somebody who's demon-possessed, which was kind of mind-blowing when you're 18, you know, <laughs> to be talking about these things. <laughs> but, you know, what do you think about exorcism? And, you know, obviously the, the Catholic Church deals with it in a different way than evangelicals would deal with it if we deal with it at all. But what what did you discover about the validity of things like exorcism or, or the ways to deal with demons? Did you look into that very deeply at all? I did. And it was so fascinating to me. You had mentioned the Catholic Church. I, I cover in the book how the Catholic Church does it, because I think that's important to understand, because they are very unique in that for me, top-down, and that's sort of how the Catholic Church works. It's, it's top-down they have a system for dealing with it. A lot of evangelical churches don't. Um, A lot of Protestant churches aren't really sure. When we did our survey for Playing With Fire, we found that only 17% of the church leaders we spoke with had a deliverance ministry at their at their church, which is essentially, and I'm oversimplifying it, but it's essentially the Protestant version of, of exorcism to a degree, um, ridding people of spiritual affliction. And so you have that top down in the Catholic Church. It's a Latin rite. It's done in a very specific way. Holy water is generally employed, a crucifix. Um, but talking with people in the Protestant world, what you find is that there are very different tools, and sometimes there are no tools. Many pastors will go in, and many deliverance ministers, and they will say, get out, you are not welcome here, and that will be the end of it. It's not the spinning heads and the pea soup flying through the air. It's very peaceful, some of them will say. Right. Yeah. You know, that's not always the case. There are, there are different experiences, and, and maybe based on the different levels of, of possession or infestation that people are dealing with. And so... I go, I go into detail on that, but I found that interesting, though, that there are different reports of what is effective and how it works. And so there are some different theories around that as well. Why would that be? Um, and so we could talk about that. But, I, but yeah, to me, it is very interesting. And I just want to bring this up because I think people don't realize this, that whether it's the Catholic Church or it's any other Protestant church, generally speaking, a lot of effort is going into investigating and making sure that they understand that the person they're dealing with or the people they're dealing with are not dealing with mental illness, that they are actually dealing with something outside of that realm, that there's real care that goes into that. And I think that's an important detail. Well, it is. Is there any indication of any sort of way to determine whether it's a mental illness versus actual demonic possession? Are there any particulars about demonic possession that set it apart from a mere mental illness? Yeah, and that was obviously a pressing question for me, and I spoke with mental health providers for this book as well, and some of them did not want to be named. Others didn't mind being named, um, and there are some, some reasons for that, because they employ some spiritual techniques in what they do. Um, but, but really, one of the things that was so simple and interesting, and I don't think it's an end-all, be-all, but it's a perspective on this from a deliverance minister I interviewed in the book, 
He said basically that he has found that when somebody is mentally ill, they don't respond to the things that he is spiritually doing to try to heal them. There, mm-hmm. there is no response to it at all, that the, that the demons in his mind are not, are not actually giving any sort of healing response in that case, because they're not actually dealing with demons. And so he's able in his work to see the difference. But, but some of these counselors, right, these mental health counselors and professionals, they're spending a lot of time sitting with people, understanding their symptoms, and, you know, when you're an expert and you do this for a living, and this is why I'm not a medical professional, but I always encourage people, talk to your pastor and talk to a counselor. If you're experiencing something, you're not sure what it is, a counselor, a mental health provider can spend that time, especially a Christian mental health provider, trying to differentiate what you are experiencing, what your symptoms are. And a pastor will be there to obviously pray with you and help you and guide you, but you have to take care of that and make sure you're not you're not dealing with mental health, right? Because you're not really treating a person either way. On one side, if somebody is mentally ill and you're only going for, a, for spiritual remedy, you're obviously not treating them. If somebody is spiritually ill and you're only giving them mental you know, health screenings and trying to help them in that front, you're not really healing them. And so it's very complicated, but it seems like there's a response on behalf of the person who is dealing with a legitimate spiritual issue when these methods are employed. Interesting. You know, something else you talk about, which I think is very important for Christians to understand, is things like uh, gateways into demonic encounters. You, you mentioned things like games, Dungeons and Dragons, or going to a psychic, or playing with a Ouija board. I have a story along those lines, so I can attest to that. But can you speak to this issue, Billy, of the dangers of dealing with the occult for fun and how that can lead us into some very dangerous territory if we don't take it seriously? Yeah, I mean, the, the world is littered with these stories, and you just mentioned that you have one, of people who have gone to a party or used a Ouija board, and they, or they've gone to psychics. I mean, the, the problem with all of this, spiritually speaking, and I don't think we see this unless we really look for it, and if churches are not talking about it, then we're specifically not hearing it, but the Bible is very clear that we are not to be consulting mediums or psychics, that we're not to be trying to communicate with the dead, that these are not things that Christians and believers should be engaged in, right? Right. right. And so when you pick up something like a Ouija board, or when you go to a psychic, you are directly engaging with the activity that you're not supposed to be engaging with. But the entire premise of those tools, you know, they market them as fun games, is to actually communicate with a spirit. And you, you may believe you're communicating with a deceased individual, but, but that is really not the case, according to the experts that I've spoken with on this, that you are communicating with something else. Now, I will say the vast majority of people may never have this level of, of you know, issue getting involved in this sort of occult activity or even playing these games. But for the people who do, these issues can be profound and they can be a real entryway for a lot of problems in people's lives and in their homes. And, you know, again... There are so many people who are not willing to share their stories. There are people listening right now who have had things happen to them as a result of dabbling in these things, and maybe they've never told anybody about it, or maybe they've been afraid to share it because it feels weird and it feels strange, but yet we have a whole history. And in the book, in Playing With Fire, I actually detail the history of the Ouija board, and that, for me, to be honest with you, was one of those things where you finish the chapter and you're writing it, and you're like, wow, the Ouija board is actually 
much more terrifying than I thought it was oh, before this because yes. now I've looked at the history. Yes. <laughs> yes, yes. And you know, it's so interesting because the more I kind of delve into this with individual Christians, the more stories I hear too of people saying, oh, I got to tell you what happened when this went on or when I was playing the Ouija board or when I was involved in, you know, light as a feather, stiff as a board. I mean, I've heard a lot of stories like this, so it's not something to laugh at. In fact, it's something to take very seriously as we obviously remember that Jesus is Lord and and that he is Lord over the demonic realm as well. You can read the book for yourself, Playing With Fire by Billy Hallowell. Billy, just a delight to have you here. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right, you take care. We'll be back on Janet Meffer today. This Janet Meffer Today archived broadcast is brought to you by Heart for Lebanon. We're trying to provide 100 refugee families with emergency supplies and the gospel during this urgent time of crisis. Your gift of $116 will help two families. Please help today by calling 888-247-5499. That's 888-247-5499. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back. Two churches, three schools, and a pro-life pregnancy network are taking legal action in Virginia, challenging a law in state court that forces them to hire employees who don't share their beliefs about sexual orientation and gender identity. Attorneys with Alliance Defending Freedom, who are representing them, also have filed suit on behalf of a Virginia photographer who is challenging that same law, which is called the Virginia Values Act. And this is a law prohibiting discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation or gender identity in housing, in public and private employment, public accommodations, and access to credit. And these plaintiffs argue that the law violates their rights under the First Amendment and forces them to abandon and adjust their convictions or pay crippling fines. So we're going to learn more now from Giannis Vidmam Delfons, who is legal counsel at Alliance Defending Freedom. Giannis, thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Tell us a little bit about this law, this Virginia Values Act. You you might think at first glance that that sounds pretty good, but it doesn't seem like it's good at all. What all is packed into this thing? Well, um, everyone should be free to live and work according to their beliefs without fear of the government coming in and unjustly punishing them. Um, but that's exactly what this act does. Uh, Bob Upthegrove, the photographer, he um, has his own studio. He creates art for uh, organizations, nonprofits, schools, you name it. He also celebrates weddings. He is a Christian. He, wants, he believes that marriage is between a man and a woman. He wants to celebrate weddings consistent with that belief. But the Virginia Values Act says that if he does so, he also has to create um, photography celebrating weddings, um, same-sex weddings. And he has to also participate in those weddings. Uh, he can't do that without violating his conscience. And Virginia cannot force him to do so uh, without infringing on his First Amendment rights. Yes. Uh, Yeah. Now, the legal argument there, they say, well, this is a matter of discrimination, right? This is their argument that you can't discriminate against anybody because this is unfair to people. How does the First Amendment actually trump that? What what is the argument that you make legally to defend Bob and, and also these other churches and schools that are fighting this law? Uh, well, one, well, it's really important for people to think of it in terms of, you know, Bob, I mean, he serves everyone. He has, uh, he's willing to create photography for, um, you know, a business owned by anyone regardless of sexual orientation. Um, he, again, he serves everyone, but he cannot promote all messages. And that's, 
this, any, that's the truth for anyone who has certain core beliefs. It doesn't matter if you're an atheist or a Jew. Um, it doesn't matter if you're Muslim or if you're gay. Uh, everyone wants to promote messages consistent with their beliefs, and that's what the First Amendment protects. This doesn't affect you know, um, what happens at Walmart or Amazon, but any business that creates expressive mediums has a right to do so consistent with their beliefs because we all have free speech. Right, right. So in many respects, this is a lot like the Jack Phillips case uh, having to do with messages rather than serving or refusing to serve people. That makes total sense. As to the Virginia values effect on these churches and these schools and, you know, this pregnancy network, this Mm -hmm. is going to make them hire employees who don't share their stated beliefs on marriage and sexuality. What exactly would they have to do under this law that is infringing upon their rights? What, what all is in there? So the law basically says that, uh, any employer, including religious ones, cannot take into account sexual orientation or gender identity when they make employment decisions. So you can hire someone, you know, a Catholic school, for instance, could hire someone that's Catholic, but then they can't actually enforce the internal policies uh, if that person decides to enter into a relationship that would violate the Catholic faith or if they want to engage in any other kind of conduct um, that Virginia interprets as uh, being protected under this law. Uh, you know, again, these schools, they offer, uh, you know, sports. Uh, they offer flag football for boys and volleyball for girls and basketball for both of them. But they only put students in those sports based on their biological sex. They offer counseling on their biblical understanding of marriage. Uh, they offer so many services uh, consistent with their beliefs. And this law basically says that they can't do that unless they want to fi- uh, face these sorts of uh, fines and punishments. Wow. So no religious exemption at all. Is that true across the board? Well, so there is a so the religious exemption is this uh, that they can take religion into account, but it's there's no teeth behind it because mm-hmm. they can't then actually look at what the person is doing and how they're living their life when they make that decision. Wow. Now, would this apply to churches then? I mean, this is basically saying if somebody who is transgender wants to become a pastor and you don't hire him, you could potentially be sued under this. Uh that's the way the law reads. There's, wow. there's simply no, as long as that person professes to be a Christian, um, you can't then take into account their sexual orientation or gender identity. That's insane. I mean, we, we all know this is kind of, they've been pushing the limits and pushing the limits all along. But now here we are. And I understand this is the first state in the South to actually go through with this kind of legislation. The other thing that is really troubling is the fines that can be levied against violators. Mm-hmm. What, what, what kinds of fines do people face if they run afoul of the Virginia Values Act? So in addition to being subject to investigations or, you know, lawsuits, they could f- face up to $50,000 fines for a first-time violation and $100,000 fines for every violation thereafter. And that's in addition to court costs, attorney fees, which we know, I mean, these, uh, it could easily bankrupt, you know, a small studio or even a school um, or a religious school that we're, that we're representing. Yeah, it makes you wonder if that's, that's the end game there as you levy that. I mean, that's, that's a huge, that's a gigantic fine, especially if you're looking at churches or small ministries. Absolutely. And, I'm, and as you say, during the legislative sessions, the legislators had the chance to um, 
debate amendments and other bills which would have given protections to these sorts of organizations, um, but they declined to do so. And when they were debating these specific penalty provisions, they said that they're doing exactly what they're intended to do. Um, So there's no question about the fact that they want to use these provisions to target people of faith. That is amazing. Something else you guys had reported is that this law also forbids Bob Updegrove, as you mentioned, the photographer, from publicly explaining on his studio's own website the religious reasons why he only celebrates wedding ceremonies between one man and one woman. He cannot, on his own website, explain his Christian beliefs. What? What? I mean, how, why would this, the state of Virginia, the Commonwealth of Virginia, be involved in what he's putting on his personal website? Uh, that's exactly right. I mean, I think that's the most clear-cut sort of example of the First Amendment violation that this statute does, because they would interpret that as a violation of um, the provisions that we talked about earlier. And that goes for the schools as well. Uh, some of them have already taken down some of their mission statements or statements of faith regarding uh, their marriages about you know, how God creates his male and female and marriage between a man and a woman for fear of violating the law. Right. Boy, that is very, very disconcerting. What about the Virginia Religious Freedom Restoration Act? How does that come into play in the arguments that you're making on behalf of these plaintiffs? Uh, And that's part of why we brought two lawsuits, because for Bob Updegrove, we basically challenged um, the Virginia statute under the federal uh, framework, under the First Amendment. But in Virginia, uh, both the Virginia Constitution and the Virginia Religious Freedom Act both protect uh, these religious organizations from operating the way that they want to. Uh, It's pretty clear, in our opinion, um, and you know, it's important to remember that courts across the country have pretty uniformly held that you can't do this sort of thing. You can't force these organizations or businesses to promote messages that violate their conscience. Um, That's why we're bringing the lawsuit under the First Amendment as well as under uh, Virginia law. Well, that's good. It has to be challenged because it's just outrageous. Plus, the Supreme Court has previously ruled that no religious organization can be required to hire somebody outside their faith. So where does that come into play? Uh, Well, you know, it's funny because uh, Attorney General Herring actually joined one of the briefs um, against the school in Our Lady of Guadalupe, where the Supreme Court held you can't meddle with a religious organization's internal employment policy. No. That's unconstitutional. Right. So, again, it's clear what they intend to do, but the Supreme Court and nearly every court that has, um, uh, you know, considered these sorts of topics, at least when it comes to creative professionals, have, pre- have said you can't do this. That's just amazing. Well, and it, it points out how radical Virginia has become, and especially with Governor Gal- Ralph Northam and the radicalization of the you know lawmakers there in that state. It's just it's just incredible what is happening to Christians, and and I'm really grateful, and I know a lot of other Christians are grateful too that you guys are taking on these cases. This is a very important battle, and it's very important that we win on this front. So we will keep on top of this and make sure we continue to get good information from Alliance Defending Freedom. Giannis Viedmalm, Delfon's legal counsel at ADF, has been with us. And we thank you, Giannis. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right. You take care. We'll be back on Janet Meffer today. Are you in need of a health care program? You're in luck. 
As a member of Liberty HealthShare, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up throughout the year with memberships starting as early as the following month, and there are no contracts or commitments. Programs start as low as $349 per month, and there's no network, so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance, so your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you, too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Find out more at libertyhealthshare.org slash jmt. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash jmt. Or call now, 855-565-2561. 855-565-2561. Did you know that bible believers around the world are praying to receive their very own copy of God's Word? Through the Ministry of Bible League International, you can send those Bibles today. Hear from Meng in Vietnam. If they don't have Bible, how they can find the truth? Because the Bible like a map to bring them to find the truth. And many people, they are really... Uh, hungry for the Word of God, and then they need the Bible. Nepo is a pastor in Ghana praying for Bibles for former Muslim radicals now following Christ. Anna was forced into an arranged marriage to an abusive atheist in Albania, but her godly witness changed his heart, and now he needs a Bible. Emilio lost everything after his home was burned by terrorists in Mexico, and he's praying for a Bible to share Christ with others. Will you be the answer to these pleas for God's Word? $5 sends one Bible, $50 sends 10, and because of a matching gift right now, your gift will be doubled. Call 800-YES-WORD, 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 or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today, and now here's Janet. Welcome back. I find it incredibly interesting and note with great satisfaction because it just kind of confirms everything we know about the left, that there is a huge discrepancy, isn't there, between the way that conservatives reacted to the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg versus how many leftists reacted to the news that President Trump had contracted coronavirus. I don't know if you've been on social media over the weekend, but it was as awful as you can imagine in terms of people wishing the president dead and at the same time talking about how this is a huge crisis for our democracy because nobody's in charge. And then there were rumors people were saying, reporters even were saying things like, we're hearing that President Trump might appoint Ivanka to take the reins. I'm like, You know, we do have a constitutional order here. Uh, we do have a vice president who has not tested positive for COVID-19 and is perfectly capable of taking the reins if President Trump becomes completely incapacitated. That is why we have a succession plan. They're just nuts. And then you can't seem to win with them. You can't seem to win with these people. On the one hand, they talk about, oh, Trump is incapacitated. He might die. We hope he does die and all this and all that. Then Sunday, he comes out and delivers this surprise visit outside Walter Reed, doing a little drive-by in a suburban, waving to the crowd because he had such a huge crowd outside the hospital, wishing him well, praying for him, holding up Trump signs and all the rest. Then the left goes nuts, saying, he's putting the lives of the Secret Service at risk. Uh, Wasn't it the case that the Secret Service was on the helicopter flying from the White House to Walter Reed in the first place? 
Uh, we're not going to talk about that. These They're all over the map. And all that you really need to know about the left is no matter what Trump does, they're against it. Doesn't matter. He probably could do something as left leaning as Biden would or Hillary would or Obama would. And they'd still kick him because he's Trump. So that's where we are. Now, I want to play a little bit of the news coverage from yesterday and over the weekend. You know, there's so much of it that you could pull out and listen to 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 really get a feel for the journalism, quote unquote, that's being done out there. Brian Stelter over at CNN never fails to come through the way you think he will. Interviewing Masha Gessen of The New Yorker. Now, you might remember that name, Masha Gessen. If you don't, I'm going to tell you more about her after we listen to this cut. But this is just an incredible moment. These people are beyond parody at this point. Stelter asks, what do you see happening in America right now with a country unable to know what to believe about the president's health? In other words, with all these conflicting reports, we just don't know what's going on. Well, you know, news came out over the weekend about what was actually going on, but this is the way that Masha Gessen of The New Yorker chose to answer that question. Cut one. Well, you know, Brian, uh, there have been a lot of comparisons to the Soviet Union in the last couple of days, and I think they're not unwarranted. Uh, the particular period that I'm thinking about is something that I've written about a lot, which were the days uh, of Stalin's death watch, right? When the, the foreign correspondents and the domestic correspondents, such as they were, um, all knew what was going on. Nobody was giving them any information. Everybody was expecting the final call, right? And the planet filled with rumor. And the thing is, it's not so much what we're being told by White House officials or by the doctors. You can actually create a reasonable narrative from all the things that they have put out there. It is the palpable sense that people are not speaking, that there are withholding information. And of course, the sense of total lack of credibility that's been established over the last four years. Right. And that's the backdrop for all of this. Unbelievable. Yeah, it's just like Stalin, Masha Gessen. Right. The Republican presidency, all the staffers, the administration, all the rest, they're just like the Soviet Union. Are you gaslighting just a little bit? Because the people who actually are acting like the former Soviet Union in so many ways, including the communism, is your side of the aisle. And and here's a perfect example of this. I'm just going to throw this in as an aside because it's important for you to remember who this person is. This is a very virulent lesbian activist, Masha Gessen, and she is the one who came out with that startling quote about the attack on the family. Do you remember this? And she said, basically, we're not about legitimizing gay marriage. We want to destroy marriage altogether. We have to develop a very collective notion that these are our children. We have to break through our kind of private idea that kids belong to their parents or kids belong to their families and recognize that kids belong to their whole communities. It's, this, this is the mindset of these people. Oh, this is some kind of expert who's going to tell us about totalitarianism. Does that sound totalitarian to you? It surely does to me. Then, this might surprise you a little bit, Carl Cameron, the former chief political correspondent over at Fox News, weighed in with Brian Stelter over on CNN with his advice for journalists and the public trying to keep up with the news. He reminded CNN viewers that most Republicans voted for somebody other than Trump in the 2016 primaries. Not really sure why that's relevant. But then he said this, cut to. What we have now is a, is a prima facie evidence of a person who became president by gaslighting the public, hiding his own failures, his lack of capacity and ability, and now finds himself 
in Walter Reed Hospital with a virus that he essentially convinced a good portion of the country was not a threat to their lives. Uh, this is the collapse of a democratic republic because of its leadership and its dishonesty. We're having the collapse of a democratic republic. It's a constitutional republic, might I remind you, Carl, but the republic is collapsing because Trump convinced most people that this COVID-19 is nothing to worry about. He did no such thing. What are you talking about? And by the way, why is there no substantive discussion on the number of people who have contracted COVID-19 and fully recovered? Because that number is somewhere in the neighborhood of 99.5%. Sounds to me that that's probably not the Black Plague, as we have been saying for months, although it has been horrible for those people who have lost their lives. And we do mourn that. But what was Trump supposed to do to stop a virus exactly? And how come you guys aren't willing to talk about what Governor Cuomo of New York did or Bill de Blasio has done in the city of New York? Nobody wants to talk about that. The people who actually botched it so badly, like Cuomo, who sent the order for nursing home residents who had COVID-19 to go back into those nursing homes and thousands of people died because of that. Oh, now he says it never happened. But, you know, we have things like screenshots, so that doesn't really work. Now, this is what I find very interesting. There has been a lot of discussion about where Trump contracted it. Now, we've got all these other people. The first lady, of course, Melania Trump, has COVID-19, although less severely than the president did. And others as well, Mike Lee and Chris Christie and some other people. And there's been discussion about the debate. Well, I found this very interesting because the city of Cleveland came out with a statement talking about the testing and everything that went on. They, the Cleveland Clinic said all the presidential debate participants and individuals traveling with both of the candidates tested negative for COVID-19 prior to the event. But WOIO in Cleveland had this to say. Listen to cut three. I should point out that the testing that was done on site was for those who were working in media construction, those types of uh, crew workers, the Candidates themselves and their traveling staffers were tested by their respective campaigns. All of them tested negative, according to the Cleveland Clinic. Now, all of that said, the city of Cleveland has identified some additional COVID-19 cases surrounding the debate or related to the debate and the surrounding area. But again, they say there's no need to fear any ensuing outbreak. Well, wait a minute. The city of Cleveland is aware of positive cases of COVID-19 following the presidential debate. At this time, they said we're aware of 11 cases stemming from pre-debate planning and setup. So apparently somebody had COVID-19 before the debate. Don't know exactly who that is, but I find that quite interesting. And again, you can't be Donald Trump and not have the left just hate absolutely everything about you on every level, question you on every level. They're doing all kinds of anonymous sources say, I was joking over the weekend, you might have seen the movie years ago called Broadcast News. And Holly Hunter is this very... uh, dramatic producer. And she said at one point during the course of that movie, you know, I hate it when you're at the White House with the reporters and one of them has a theory and another White House reporter quotes it in his story as White House sources say. And I always laughed about that line, but now it's really happening. I think they're just quoting each other. At least there's probably a likelihood for that. And this is where we are. 2020 media coverage. What a nightmare. Well, we are trying to do some wonderful things, wonderful things for families in Lebanon, 
with this wonderful campaign we have going with Heart for Lebanon. So many of you have given. We're trying to raise enough funds to help 100 families in these refugee camps in Lebanon. And you know how difficult the situation has been over there of late. We want to help 100 families get the food they need and the emergency supplies they need for the next 60 days. The greatest thing about Heart for Lebanon is how many of these Muslim families are coming to know the Lord Jesus Christ through this ministry. That's the most important thing. This opens doors like you wouldn't believe at a time when people's hearts are wide open to hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. So if you can help, a gift of $58 will help one family. We're trying to help 36 more families. If you can help out, here's the number, 888-247-5499, 888-247-5499, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. We so appreciate you and love you and really are thankful for the support that you've given to Heart for Lebanon. Again, that number, 888-247-5499. We'll see you next time.